How did you enjoy my students last week? You know, I think if I keep working with them, they'll get good. Now, you know that's not true. I, uh, I'm so grateful for what Roger Breland has brought to our university, but beyond our university. You know, that group is singing every weekend someplace read all around the nation. And if when John hit that high note on the midnight cry, if you didn't have goosebumps, we need to call funeral home. I'm just, I'm just saying. It's so good to see you and to be a part of your fellowship today. And of course, uh, I have watched your fellowship develop and grow. And I have a message for you today that um, is about where you go from here. What now? Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll look at verse 13. We need to talk about influence. This particular verse comes in the treatise of Christ that we know as a Sermon on the Mount, beginning of his ministry. As he's beginning to set the course for what will become our, uh, our mission in life and what we are to be about doing. And in this comprehensive record, which becomes really the, the cliff notes of the message of Christ in this, these chapters in Matthew. He says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But get this. But if the salt should lose its taste, the salt should lose its saltiness, how, how can it be salty again? For it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out, trampled under men. Then he said the same thing a different way. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp, puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. Gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works. But more than that, give glory to your Father in heaven. One other place I'd like you to look. John chapter 15. And now we're at the end of the ministry of Christ. He's giving his final charge. To the men into whose hands he's going to leave the expansion of the kingdom of God on earth. This is in the upper room experience. He's only an hour or so away from the, the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal and the arrest and the events that followed resulting in the crucifixion. And he's pouring himself into his men. And in this part, portion of that, of that final charge, he uses the word over and over and over again. He uses the word abide, 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 abide. And he ties that word to the production of fruit. I'm going to suggest to you that's the same thing as salt. It's the same thing as light. It's influence. Influence upon the culture of a world. The influence of the culture of Christ upon that world. And he says this in the fourth verse. Abide in me and I in you. Tight relationship. You abide in me, I abide in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. 
Let's talk about influence. Three years ago, in a speech, uh, then campaign candidate Barack Obama made a, a comment that raised a lot of distress in faith circles around our country. He said, America is no longer a Christian nation. And you, like I, said, oh, 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 no, can't be true. It might surprise you to learn. I believe it's exactly right. Now, I don't know that I would agree with his purpose in making that comment, but I'll tell you it's right. This nation, this nation that we have pledged our allegiance to under God is no longer a God-honoring place. Now, there are pockets of it, but we're no longer a Christian nation. Let me give you some examples of my opinion. We're in a post-Christian era. Christianity is no longer the default setting for young men and women as they rise into the age of their life where they make decisions and make commitments. The worldviews and the belief systems and the religious expressions of the generation rising among us, generation of leaders, I might say, rising among us, is no longer primarily guided by the things of Scripture. Our, our land continues to distance itself in culture and in policy from the things of God. We live in a land where there is no longer a nationally recognized and respected voice for the things of God. All of my life, that voice belonged to Billy Graham. Age is now quietened his voice. There is nothing taking, that has taken his place. We live in a land where churches representing Christ in America are in decline. Seventy percent of the men and women aged 30 and under who have grown up in those churches are leaving those churches in search of a Christ-centric place that is not burdened with traditions and meaningless forms. We live in a land where those same churches, once the shapers of the ethical and moral bearing and being of this nation have lost that influence, lost the effect, lost the saltiness. That's the church. Ladies and gentlemen, that is us. We live in a nation where godless arrogance is at large among leadership in both the public and the private sector, resulting in policy decisions that are unhealthy for the whole and the long-term benefit of our nation. We live in a nation where there is a decline or the absence of biblical instruction in homes and in churches. And it's resulted in an understanding of the in our culture now that equates Christian belief with pagan belief with equal standing. We live in a nation where concepts of responsibility to God, responsibility to others, self-sacrifice, is lost in a national sea of greed and self-entitlement. And unless you think that happens out there and not in here, I will guarantee you just... 
looking among us, there are a large number of persons in this room right now who are depending upon a federal or state entitlement program or benefit program to sustain us. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that it is. Listen to these numbers. In this nation, there is a declining balance of Christian influence in America. Among those adults, American adults, who identify themselves as Christian, self-identification as Christian, 98 to 60% of Americans will say, yes, I'm a Christian, but listen to the content of the belief of this same group of people. 60% only, excuse me, 9% of American adults say they have a biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview would be defined as this, believing in, that, there, that absolute moral truth exists, believing that the Bible is totally accurate in all the principles it teaches, Believing that Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. Believing that a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. Believing that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth. And believing that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who is present with us today. Only 9% of adults in this nation would say they hold to those truths. Let me give you some other numbers. 66 of all adults do not believe that moral truth is absolute and unaffected by circumstances. 50% of all adults do not believe that the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. 73% of adults are not convinced that Satan is a real force. 72% of adults believe it is possible for someone to earn their way into heaven. 60% of American adults are not persuaded that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life while he was on earth. And 30% of adults do not believe that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who rules today. And all of that, as Muslim influence in America continues to expand, and it is said recently... That within 20 years, the, the Muslim population in America will double and it will continue to roll beyond that. And that as there is a continual declining balance of the beliefs that we hold to be true in this nation. America, ladies and gentlemen, is no longer a Christian nation. And I've come to you today to ask this church, this fellowship... What do you intend to do about that? I have two little granddaughters. They're age five and two and a half. By the time that those little girls are my age, age 60, America will be a different place if the trends continue unchecked. By the time those little girls, 50 years from now, 55 years from now, are my age, the prominent established religion in this country will be Islam. The prominent culture in this country will be pagan. 
Our nation will have experienced the same thing that the Soviet or Russia did following the fall of the Soviet Union. We will fall economically from a world power status because we can no longer afford to do it. Our economy will begin to close in on itself. China will be the dominant political power in the world. We will still be, have a place at the table because of the number of people in America, but we won't own the table. China will own it. And my little girls, coming to my age, will have no idea what it means to live in a nation where God is honored. If the trends continue. And I want to know, what are you going to do about it? When you boil me down, you find motivations in three areas primarily. I've mentioned one, two little girls. I'm jealous about the future into which they step. The other, more prominent, is a, de a desire, a deep longing in my life that, that someday I stand in front of my Lord Jesus Christ and he looks at me and says, way to go. You did, you did it well. You did it my way. And there's a third motivation in my life that is unshakable. I was born in 1950. My heroes are the, are the men and women out of World War II, those GIs that preserved our nation for what we have now. My father was a veteran in, in World War II in the Pacific Theater. My father-in-law in North Africa. Both of those were very dangerous places to be. Those two men, not knowing who I was, put their lives on the line. And I consider that a debt is coming from that. A debt that remains to be paid because you and I stand in the freedom that their passions purchased. And when you bring those three motivations together in me, a debt owed, a Lord to honor, and two little girls to, to shepherd into a safe adulthood, I want to tell you I don't compromise too much. And I've stopped being nice about what I say. Because there's not time to continue being real nice about it. The church in America is losing ground as we sit here. And I want you to understand that the greatest threat to the welfare of this nation is not Islam. It is not what's going on in Egypt and Iraq and the Middle, in the Middle East. It is not an economic situation. It's not even policies that are being placed upon us with which I may or may not agree the greatest threat to the welfare of this nation sits in churches just like this one today across this land. They are men and women who call themselves Christians and have not the first idea what it means to follow Jesus Christ on his terms. Now let me tell you what's different about this place from those. I know what you're hearing about how to follow Christ. I know what your pastor's putting before you, but I don't know what you're taking away. Let me ask you a couple of hard questions. And just so you won't think I'm picking just on you. This is the same thing I'm taking, Fred, to every place I stand. Look among you. If you took everyone my age and up out of this fellowship instantly, what would be left of this, of this church? I'm 60. Do the math. Right now, I look upon you, and I, and I look at you, and there's a lot of silver hair in here. And I'm all for silver hair. You look at Marilyn, and we, we really like silver. Oh, yeah. 
I like silver. You know, Fred, ever since my hair turned white, people look at me and ask me what I think about stuff. Now, I don't know any more about it than I used to. My hair was brown, but they think I do. Oh, it's, it's wonderful stuff. But because of the age of your church, as a very young church, but with an older population, that implies to me that your mission has a 15 to 20 year life. Is that what you intend? I heard that. I believe it. There's a beautiful picture of a building outside. You have great plans. But what's it going to be? How will it be used? Let me tell you a story. This story I first ran across, I don't know, 20 years ago. It was written in 1950, 60 years ago. Listen to this. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur... There was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut. And there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with Uh, the the life-saving station and gave of their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought. New crews trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge for those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds. They put better furniture in the large building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. They decorated it beautifully because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired Lifeboat crews to do the work. And, but the life-saving motif was still prevailed in the club's decorations. There was a symbolic lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. But about this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast. And the hired crews brought in the boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty. They were sick. (laughs) The new club was in chaos. So the property committee, you knew a committee was involved somewhere, didn't you? (laughs) The property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the, the club where the victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activities as being unpleasant and and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some of the members, however, insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. 
But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station. And so they did. And as years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that the old one had. It evolved into a club. Yet another life-saving station was founded. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters. But most of the people drown. So I have a question for you. What are you going to do about it? Is this going to be another country club? Or is this going to be a launch pad? A launch pad where you are bringing in and sending out men and women who understand this mission, understand the saltiness, understand light, understand influence upon a culture. The tendency of churches, hear me, this, you've got to guard against this. The tendency of churches is to become self-absorbed. Fred, we have adopted in this nation without intent. Because our theology says something else. But we've, in, we've, we've incorporated into the life of our churches. And by the way, that story is the story of the evangelical church in America. It is the story of the Southern Baptist denomination in America. So how will you be different? We have incorporated into our mentality, into our church understanding, what I simply call church-centric thinking. Church-centric thinking means we want everybody to come. We want to get them in here. We even measure that way. What's the first question you ask when you measure how good a day we have? How many people showed up? See, it's, it's just built in. We think that way. How many people can we get in here? Now, understand the theory. We bring them for influence. But the problem is, we don't send them out. Our understanding of God's Word, our understanding of what Jesus taught, if you look at any of His words, He's always talking about sending people out. The only times there was a big gathering was when He was trying to be alone. <laughs> He went to a mountain apart by himself to pray. The people found out they were there and they all flocked in. Why? They want to see miracles. They want to show. It was the equivalent of a circus coming to town. Happened again. Big crowd gathered when he was on trial. And at the crucifixion, it was another circus. Those gatherings of people didn't care about what the meaning of those events. They just wanted to show. How will you be different in this community and beyond? Let me ask you another question. An evaluative question. If this church ceased to exist this afternoon, what difference would it make beyond the parking lot of this school? Now those two, those two questions... Age 60 and out, who's left? 
If you disappeared, what difference would it make in the community in which you exist? Those two questions should guide what you wish to be, what you plan to be. But here's what can happen if you're not careful. There's an, an experience of human life that is called homeostasis. Homeostasis is the tendency of any human organism to seek and retain its place of greatest comfort. An example of that in your life is when you wake up, step on the scales and say, "Uh Oh, I better do some exercise. And so you get into it and you do exercise for a whole day. You're working hard. And the next morning, what happens? You can't move. Because your body is saying to you, I don't like what you did to me. I wish to stay here. Homeostasis. In organizations, it's the same thing. And the church is the the most susceptible. When your church began, there was the idea of a mission. And, And however it was stated, it had something to do with the commission of Christ. How, about making disciples, about bringing influence to bear upon a community and beyond. Is that a good summary? Absolutely. And if you ask any of, of you who were part of that original gathering, what is your mission? They would have said immediately, we want to make disciples. We want to influence our local culture and beyond. Perfect. And then you started designing actions that you would take to fulfill that. Those actions have already begun to take on patterns in this fellowship. And this is a very young fellowship. It's already started to take on patterns. And as time goes by, those actions repeat themselves over and over and over again. They take on patterns and eventually they will become habits. And if you stop at that point in the organization's life, in, this, in the life of this church or others, and you ask now the larger group of people, what is your purpose? You will still hear strains of the original, we're going to make disciples and influence the culture for Jesus Christ. But they will, you will also begin to hear what you're doing. Oh, well, let me show you. We're going to build a building. This is marvelous. We're excited. We meet at Davidson High School, and here's what we do, and here's what times we do it, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Nothing really particularly wrong with that, but as time goes by, those actions that were designed to fulfill the original purpose, which have taken become patterns, which became habits, time goes by, and those habits have now become rules. This is the way we do it. This is where we sit. By the way, just let me test. I'd like to see the hands of how many of you are sitting within three seats of where you sat last Sunday. May I? Thank you. You're honest people. Homeostasis is already at work in this fellowship. Now, the rules are usually written down. You have a bulletin in your hand? The church bulletin is the cliff notes of the rules. And if you ask anybody at that point in the organization's life, now a much bigger organization, thriving. Reminds me of Vance Havner. Said the, the, the cycle of the church, Fred, in four words. A man, a mission, a machine, and a monument. Well, when the rules are in place, now you're in the machine status. I mean, you are rolling. And you're influencing, and you're doing lots of things. If you stop and ask any of the people, the thousands of people who come then, what is your mission? You won't hear anything about making disciples. 
You won't hear anything about saltiness. You won't hear anything about light. But you'll hear a lot about what we're doing. We're doing this and we're doing that and we're doing that. Boy, we're sending missionaries out. We're doing money. Got the money going here and there. Look at this new building. And do you like the color of the fabric on the chairs? We're doing. But as time goes by, and those actions which were designed to fulfill a purpose, a biblical purpose, which became patterns, which became habits, which became rules, have now become the law. And if you break the law, the penalty is death. That's the history of the church. Now, the only way to retain saltiness in that inevitable process, which is already at work in this fellowship, the only way is to keep the mission before yourselves all the time. We are here to be salt and light in a culture and change this country and the world in the name of Jesus Christ. But stop talking about it as we like you a big thing, church. You better start talking about it as individuals. We can't talk about this as we. But you know why? Because it's easy to do that. Oh, we are going to do that. And we are going to do this. And they are our target. No, they're not. I want to know what your personal mission is. I want to know where you are personally in this matter of saltiness in a culture. I want to know where you are personally in this matter of light on a hill. How is your influence not somewhere else in the world? How is your influence right here, this place? I got news for you. It's easy to do it in here. It's a safe place. How's your influence out there tomorrow? When you go to work, men, men, will anybody know, anybody you're with tomorrow, know by your action that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? By what you say at work, the way you conduct yourself, the way you handle your money, the way you deal deal with your customers, or the way you drive on Airport Boulevard. Now, there's a test. Will anyone know that you're a disciple of Christ? Will anyone know that you wish to be salt and light for the culture of Christ in this community and beyond? Ladies, in your conversations with your friends tomorrow, the topics that you choose to talk about, the people about whom you speak, will anyone hearing that know that You are of the culture of Christ. Jesus said, be salt. He said, produce fruit. Now let me teach you a moment about fruit. Let's go back to the scripture. Let's go back to John 15. Let me show you something. 
Jesus spent a lot of time in these last moments with his men. A lot of time. John records it uniquely. The other gospel writers don't give as much time. But John just pours in. The others were talking more about the story. John focuses in on what Jesus was saying. And if you look at chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, all, if you use a red letter edition, it's all red. Because these are the words of Jesus. Now he's pouring himself into these men's lives. Jesus is a master teacher. He uses effective teaching techniques. And the technique that he chose to use at this part of, of his sharing with his men was, was one that you, those of you who are teachers will understand redundancy. Saying the same thing over and over again, coming at it from different angles, in order that the student gets what you're trying to say. Redundancy. Jesus is using that technique. Let me read to you. You follow along. Chapter 15, verse 1. I want you to listen for the redundant message, okay? Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it abides on the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Anyone who abides in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown aside. Like a branch, he withers, and they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they burn. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit. Salty. Prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and abide in His love. All right, you heard it. What's the, what's the redundant message? Abide, 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 abide. Now, abide is a word that we don't use a whole lot in our normal conversation comes from a more, more formal expression of speech. For example, if I were to call my friend Brian Boyle and said, Brian, let's catch up a little bit, grab some coffee and abide together for a little while. I can promise you, even though I am Brian's boss, he is not going to want to abide with me. But if I said, hey, Brian, let's get some coffee, catch up, and hang out for a little while, all of a sudden that's okay. Because it means the same thing, you see, to spend time with over time. Now, Jesus was bringing this message, just pouring it into his guise. Abide, abide, abide. I want you to hang out with me. I want you to be with me. I want my words to be in you. I want you to be salty. I want you to produce fruit because of this relationship. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I'm going to teach you a great spiritual truth. This is called the fajita principle. Any takers? Oh, you're going to love it. All right, I don't know if you're, the, if you're fajita people. I don't know if you like the, the chicken or the beef or the shrimp. But we are on the same page here, right? Yeah. 
Now, you go to, think of your, your favorite restaurant. Now, I'm not talking Taco Bell here. Forget that. I'm talking upscale. We're talking fajitas here. All right? And you go in. You don't even need the menu, do you? You know what you want. And so you place the order for your fajitas. And, and, the, and the table server brings you the, the chips and the salsa and the tall sweet tea. We, we still together? All right. And you enjoy that. And as good as that is, you're waiting for the, the real thing. And you can hear it before you see it, can't you? And so this platter of marvelous food is placed before you. The chicken and the beef and the shrimp and the onions and the peppers. And it's just marvelous. The aroma is just, oh, I'm speechless. And you begin to abide with fajitas. And fajitas begin to abide with you. And it's a marvelous thing. And you linger there. And you enjoy that moment. But sooner or later, somebody, you're going to have to leave. You've got to go back to work or school to your responsibility. And when you do that, someone's going to come up to you and they're going to do this. (laughs) You've been abiding with fajitas. Because at that moment, you are radiating fajitas. And there's no mistaking where you've been. Jesus was teaching his men the fajita principle. Abide with me because, listen to this, church, we become that with which we abide. Okay? Now, I'm interested in seeing a nation transformed in the name of Jesus Christ. Our university has taken on as a goal that by the year 2020, now nine and a half years from now, that our university is leading the movement of our nation in a spiritual and cultural restoration. And you've already heard about parts of it. Joe Savage was here. I know he talked about that. And there's some things that you can listen to. There's a, there's a CD outside that you can listen to. If you want to know that story. By the way, Breland sells his, I give mine away. There's probably a reason for that. This is free to you for as many as last. Also, if you want to know more about it, there's a book that you can get. Now, Fred, this one's yours. Here's what I want to happen. I want you to read this. And if you find favor, if this is right, I want you to encourage your people to get one and read it. If you don't like it, just don't say anything about it. It'll be okay. I want a nation back, folks. Got a debt to repay here. A debt to a Savior who died for us. A debt to a generation who gave their lives for us. I want the nation back. And I've decided I'm going to spend the rest of my life, the rest of my influence, the rest of my energy working to that end. Our Board of Trustees has graciously graciously said, yes, go do that. And you're thinking, okay, what do I do? here's, Here's what you do. I want you to dig a foxhole. And present yourself ready for orders. Now what your orders are as an individual or collectively as a church, I don't know. That's not my job. 
My job is to put this before you and say, if you don't, we will lose our nation. So assume it depends upon you as an individual. Sir, our nation depends on you. Our nation depends on you, ma'am, and your attitude. My, our nation depends on you. So I've come here to this wonderful fellowship of friends to ask, to, to present this set of circumstances and ask you, what are you going to do about it? If I had to tell them to tell one story, I mean, it'd be quick. It's a short story. It's a little story. World War II, Arden Forest, 1944, December, Battle of the Bulge. You know the story, German offensive rolling through. American lines completely routed. They're just falling over themselves trying to find a safe place. An American tank moving west through the Arden Forest finds a lone American soldier, one guy, digging a foxhole. His name is Martin. He's a private in the 325th Glider Infantry Division. Martin looks up from his digging. Now he's by himself in the middle of this forest with the entire German army on his, on his, on his tail. And he's digging a fox. So he looks up from his digging, digging and says to the tank crew, you fellas looking for a safe place? Tanker says, you betcha. Where are our lines? He said, just pull your vehicle behind me. I'm 82nd Airborne. This is as far as they're going. I love that story. I love that attitude. Because that is the attitude that you and I, who call ourselves by the name of Christ, must adopt if this nation is going to be restored to itself. Restored to the point of honoring God in Christ. It can be done. It must be done. And it will take you digging a foxhole and reporting for duty. Whatever that duty assignment is, and having the courage to go. Let me tell you the rest of the story. That afternoon, other soldiers found that, that one private digging that foxhole in that one tank. Other tanks found them. The lines began to coalesce. By the end of December 23, 1944, the new American lines had reformed at that foxhole. Now, we at the University of Mobile have made our decision. What will yours be? Time to be salty, friends.